He was a normal person in every respect, according to these verses. Hebrews 4. And I just want you to, maybe you're very familiar with this verse. I want you to let this verse encourage you in a fresh sort of way this morning. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When you go to Christ and you say, I messed it up again. I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe I'm tempted by this. Just remember this verse. I was talking to some students this week, and we were talking about the nature of temptation and the nature of sin. And one of the students said, I feel like I should be past this, that I wouldn't be tempted by this particular thing anymore. I thought, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? I think we all feel that way sometimes. Has anybody else ever felt that way? Like, I feel like I should be past this one, but I'm not. Just remember that Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in every way, just like you are. And I don't think it was a maturity issue on his part, all right? It wasn't that. It wasn't that he didn't know the right verses. He's a human. And so in our human frailty, in our human flesh, he took that on so that now when you go to him, he's a sympathetic high priest and he can put his arms around us and say, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get the temptation. Of course, he didn't give in. He's sinless. So Jesus understands our weaknesses. He understands our frailty. And this passage is so encouraging. I think the birth narrative is really exploring the theology of that, all right? So the birth narrative that we see here, he's a baby, born to a woman, wrapped in swaddling cloths, nothing extraordinary. He wasn't wrapped in, you know, angel wings when he was born and had a glowing halo about him. It wasn't like that. It was a very normal situation. We have trouble grabbing onto that. And always have. In fact, some of the ancient heresies really struggled with how could Jesus be both truly God and truly man? And so a lot of the ancient heresies and ancient, if you're into church history and things like that, the the church councils were trying to figure out how do we word this and how do we say that Jesus was, in fact, truly, fully God and man at the same time? The study of this, this is your bonus question for the day. The study of this is called the hypostatic union, all right? We'll quiz you on that later. The hypostatic union. How could God be both? How could Jesus be both God and man, the God-man? So one of the ancient heresies, and you, and you tended to fall off one side or that or the other. So either denying full humanity or denying full deity, that Jesus was in fact God. One of the ancient heresies was something called uh, docetism. And this was belief that Jesus was not fully, truly human, but he only appeared to be. And so that's the word um, that this comes from, uh, docato. Uh, and it, it means that this uh, it was something that appears to be, um, but isn't in reality. And that was what they, uh, they looked at. Dokine was the word. He appeared to be human, but he wasn't. So his body that you saw, it was either some sort of an illusion, a hologram sort of type of thing, but it wasn't actually human, or it was made out of some celestial substance. I have no idea what to do with that, but that was the idea. He can't actually be human. It's, it's not dignified enough for God to take on human flesh. But of course, what we see is that Jesus was fully, truly human, as the verse in Hebrews tells us. He was. And this is 
what we see in the birth of Christ. You have the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths reminds us that Jesus took on true human flesh. All right, so the Messiah is born, and we saw that last time. Let's move on. So in verse 8, we see that the glory is back in town. Adam talked for a moment in our psalm reading this morning about the importance of Jerusalem and eventually the temple that would be built in Jerusalem and the glory presence of God that would come and visit them and dwell in Jerusalem. We're going to explore that this morning. Let's read verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The glory is back in town. We're going to take this just line by line and explain what's going on here. One interesting point, I ruined Christmas for a few of you last week, showing that some things are in the Bible and some things are actually come to us maybe through folklore and tales of Christmas that have been passed down. Well, I want to do it once again for you here this morning because that was so much fun last week. There's no verse in the Bible, and most of you are probably aware of this already, there's no verse in the Bible that actually says Jesus was born on December 25th. All right, let that sink in for a moment. There's no verse in the Bible Now, it's not impossible that it was December the 25th, and church history has a long tradition, and it is quite possible. But the reason I bring this up this morning is because of this first line, there's been an argument that's been made around this first line, and I, I just want you to know that it's out there. It says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Well, in the winter, you typically didn't stay out in the field with your flock, it was wintertime, so you didn't do that because it was cold. And so they would bring the sheep in uh, during the winter. And so many have surmised from this passage that, well, it couldn't have been in the middle of the winter in December when this all went down. And they've surmised from that that this was uh, some other time of the year, probably in the spring, which would have been a more appropriate season for them to be out. We don't know for sure. Um, that's certainly a possibility, but we don't know that uh, for sure. Um, The winters over there are typically relatively mild. You know, it's not like Montana winter or something like that. We traveled out west, you know, our family did this last year on sabbatical. And tell you what, going from Florida to Montana, different planet, I felt like. It's middle of June and we're having snow flurries. I'm like, this is not from the Lord. It's not. It's not. Yeah, snow on the mountains, and we're freezing to death, and um, it was, yeah, it was something. So in the winter there, totally different thing, but Israel, typically, it's a little bit more, it's, it's a milder climate than it would be somewhere like that, and so it's, it is not completely impossible. There are some records that there were some shepherds out, and so one of the questions that comes up, so why do we do this thing on December 25th then, right? And my answer to that is sort of a complication, uh, it's, it's sort of a compilation of, we're not exactly sure and it's complicated. 
all right? It's sort of entrenched into the calendar now. So one thing that happened in the early church is they had something called the Feast of Annunciation, all right? The Feast of Annunciation was established, and the Feast of Annunciation was a celebration of Gabriel's visit to Mary to tell her that she was going to have a child. So the Feast of Annunciation was said to happen on March the 25th. Do the math, nine months later, you have December 25th, and so that's part of the argument. There was a theological perspective amongst many in that time that Jesus was conceived and he died on the same day. And we know that he died at Passover. So the thought would be he was born at Passover as well, um, or conceived at Passover and then born nine months later. There was that. There was also somewhat of a convenient feature, and that is there were Roman holidays right at the end of December. And so the early days, there was sort of this commingling of celebrating the birth of Christ and also various Roman holidays and pagan festivals that would take place. And so there was a sort of intermingling of celebrating Christ and other things. And that's uh, began to be entrenched into what we call the liturgical calendar, the church calendar, uh, somewhere around Constantine in the 300s. And it's really been the time that we celebrate Christ ever since. That may bother some of you that we don't know with absolute certainty when Christ was born, but my thing is, if God had wanted us to know exactly when that happened, he would have told us, and we have everything that we need, and so I am totally fine celebrating the birth of Christ in December. I'm so glad the culture gives us that time to talk about Christ in a very open way, so I'm, I'm very glad for that. So just so you know, those are some of the arguments and discussions going on. Um, around, uh, around the Christmas season. So these shepherds, they're out in the field and they're keeping watch over their flock. They're nothing special, and I think that's exactly the point. They're nothing special. They're just people. They're just guys that are out in the field. And then something absolutely extraordinary happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. This is verse nine. And then the glory of the Lord shone around them And then what are they? They were filled with great fear. This is the reaction when somebody meets the angel of the Lord, every time in the Bible. So this was the reaction of Zechariah in Luke chapter one. And Zechariah was was troubled when he saw him. That's Gabriel. And fear fell on him when the angel comes to meet Mary. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this is. So this is the upside down type of kingdom. You have these shepherds. They're nothings. Elizabeth, very normal person. Mary, very normal. And then you have the glory presence that appears to these shepherds. Now, I want to impress on you how incredible this is that this happened at this place at this time. Nobody saw this one coming. It's amazing. So the glory of God comes back. The glory of God's been gone from Israel for years and years and years. There's no record of the glory presence of God until this night. Now, the glory presence doesn't show up in Jerusalem, nearby Jerusalem at the temple, doesn't show up at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting, doesn't show up there, doesn't show up at seminary chapel, shows up to these shepherds out in the field. How amazing is that? This is one of my favorite themes in the Bible, is the theme of the glory of God. A few years ago, I wrote my uh, thesis on this, uh, on this particular theme, 
And so I, I get excited about this, this theme. Uh, it's just so cool for us to be able to study it together. So let's take a, we're going to take just a quick survey. I promise I'm not going to give you the whole thesis this morning. But let's look at it. The quick survey of the glory of God. You have a glory of God that first shows up in Exodus chapter 16. That's the first place where we have an explicit reference to the glory of God. Exodus chapter 16. The people are wandering, they're complaining, we don't have any food, and it says God is going to show you his glory, and he brings the manna. A couple of chapters later, God meets with his people at Mount Sinai, and you'll remember the descriptions in Mount Sinai. The glory presence comes down on the mountain, and the mountain is filled with smoke, and then God booms out with this loud voice and gives them this, the Ten Commandments. And the people, remember what they do? They all take a step back and say, Moses, you go talk to him. We're going over here. You mediate. And so from that point, we see Moses and his brother Aaron become the mediators of God's covenant with them. So this glory comes down and Moses goes up. And so Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. All right, so this is, Israel is just getting established and they are gonna build this tabernacle eventually. How do we dwell with God? How can God be in our midst? And they're instructed to build a tabernacle. Moses is given instructions while he's up on the mountain. Says, and he's shown a tabernacle. I want you to go replicate this. Go build one of these. And this is where my glory presence is going to reside. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what he does. And so we have the glory that's on the mountain. Now the glory is going to move to the tabernacle. I've shown you this picture before, but this is a replica. Somebody actually built this in Israel, and it's just a replica. And you can, you can tour this. It's in Timnah, Israel. You can tour it, and it's built to spec um, according to the Exodus uh, stipulations of what the tabernacle was supposed to be like. And so I think most of us look at this and think, that's not exactly where I would pick God to live, right? It's kind of simple. It's maybe unimpressive even to us. But this is where God chooses to live, Exodus 40, they finished building the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this is where the glory of God would be year after year. The tabernacle, and eventually they wander around in the wilderness. When the glory presence picked up and moved, they would go in and wrap up the tabernacle, and everybody had a job, and they would pack it all up, and they would follow the glory presence of God. You can read about this in Numbers. They would follow the glory presence of God. When the presence stopped, they would set up the tabernacle again. And I had this question for a long time as a Bible student. How did they move the thing without being struck dead? Because you weren't supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. The answer was, when the glory presence wasn't there, then they could go in and move it. But as soon as the glory presence was back, now this is, you know, the the nuclear reactor is back. (laughs) You can't go in there now. Um, And so that's, that's how it worked. Eventually, the people take the land of Israel, and David wants to build a temple for God. Instead of the tent, he wants to build an actual temple. And what we see is that David is not going to be the man that's going to build a temple, but his son Solomon builds his temple. 
We don't have any actual pictures of Solomon's temple, but something like this. So you see the basic footprint is the same, the, the basic layout and idea of the tabernacle, but it's much, much, much more expanded at this point. So we're pressing forward quite a few years in the timeline, and as Solomon does this, as Solomon builds his temple, he prays a prayer of dedication. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All right, are you seeing how this works? They build the tabernacle, pray a prayer of dedication. They build it just like the Lord said. God comes to dwell with them. Years later, they build a permanent structure. God comes to dwell with them. All is good. God dwelling with his people, right? Well, things get complicated. The glory leaves Israel. The people are not obedient to the Lord. They break the covenant. And so eventually, God pronounces judgment The kingdom divides, and it turns into a big mess. Here's how it worked. So what we have is the tabernacle is taking place somewhere around the 1500s, um, 1400s by the time they take the land, and it would function that way for roughly 500 years or so, uh, four to 500 years, somewhere in there. And then eventually, Solomon would build his temple, and shortly after that, the kingdom splits after Solomon, and the temple is in the south, Um, So the temple is destroyed when the southern kingdom falls in 586. The northern kingdom had fallen in 722 before that. And we're in this period of the divided kingdom. Eventually, some of the exiles would return to Jerusalem, and they wanted to rebuild the temple, and so they do. So you remember, in, uh, in the stories we've already looked at, the tabernacle, they pray a prayer of dedication. What happens? Glory presence comes. They build the temple, they pray a prayer to dedication, what happens? Glory presence comes. Zerubbabel's temple, they pray a prayer of dedication, what happens? No glory. No glory. The glory never comes back. Glory never comes back. Ezekiel prophesied this. He says, in the glory of the Lord, and it's a progression, watch the progression. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. So it picks up from the altar, and it goes to the threshold, the door. Verse 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. So it lifts up, goes to the front of the house, then it lifts up, leaves, and then 11.23, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. There's a couple of significant things happening here. Ezekiel is in captivity in Babylon at this point. He's not in Jerusalem, and yet he sees the glory of God, and he sees it lifting up from Jerusalem. It's almost like um, we're going to raise this house. We're going to destroy this house. Let's get all the valuables out first, and then we're going to bulldoze it. That's kind of what's happening. The temple's going to be destroyed, and the glory presence gets out before this temple is destroyed. Now, this is an interesting phrase, this last one, It says, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, this is interesting. In my thesis, uh, you have to do an oral defense of your writing. And part of that process, they have, uh, you have two different readers that will read your paper and then they, you know, critique you and give you feedback and uh, that sort of thing. Well, it's it's an oral thing. So I'm 
I'm there, and I don't know who my second reader, my primary reader, you know, I didn't know my second reader until relatively soon before um, I actually had the oral defense. So I'd gone up to campus to do my oral defense, and I'd learned who my second reader was going to be. And I had learned that Dr. Betts had written a book on Ezekiel, and I had a section in in my paper about Ezekiel. I'm like, oh boy, um, this ought to be fun. So I go to the library, uh, I get there early and I go to the library to try to get his book. Um, I'm like, you know, maybe cram for the exam here. Uh, So, and and all the copies are checked out. (laughs) I'm like, oh well. So I show up and of course he wants to talk about Ezekiel. And we get to this and he says, "You, you talk about the glory leaving Israel he said, where did the glory go when it left Jerusalem? And in all my learnedness, I said, the glory of God went away. <laughs> like, and I said, Dr. Betts, I said, I just want you to know, you should be encouraged that all the copies of your book are checked out in the library right now. <laughs> he laughed about that, said, I'm not sure that would have helped you anyways. And, but he made a point that stuck with me. Where did the glory go? The glory went to which direction? To the east. You know where he was in captivity? To the east of the city. The glory, what what God is doing here is he's saying, the glory's leaving this house, but the glory's not abandoning his people. And he made that point, and I thought, that is really helpful and profound, I think. So that's what's going on. So that's the glory presence. It's been gone for hundreds of hundreds of years. Look at the timeline again. We're talking hundreds of years. The temple's destroyed in 586. What? 500-something years. The glory's been gone until this night. And then all of a sudden, we have glory out in a field. A field is supposed to be in the tabernacle or the holy place, the temple. Not in a field. We have glory in a field to the shepherds who are out tending their flock ordinary, normal guys, letting us know there's a new day in town. The glory of God is no longer what you think it is, or where you think it is, at least. And just to put a bow on this and wrap it up, the glory in the new heavens and the new earth, we look forward again to having God's glory visible in a very unique and special way in the new heavens and new earth. Look at what it says, Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He's going to dwell with them. And then we have this verse. This is said twice in the Revelation uh, 21, 22. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the lamb. It's amazing. The glory of God, beginning to end. Here it is again that we look forward to. So back to these shepherds. They are there, and they're given a commission. They see the glory of God. It's an extraordinary thing to see the glory of God. Not everybody got to see that, but the glory is all of a sudden back in Israel. But it's not where they think it should be, and it's not appearing to the people that should be seeing it, according to human wisdom. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. We noticed earlier the importance of this term, Savior. Savior who is Christ the Lord. This idea can be a physical salvation, salvation from enemies. 
But more than that, Jesus didn't just come to rid them of the Roman occupation. Jesus didn't just come so that you could have more sales and promotions. Jesus came to provide an answer for your ultimate problem, and that is the problem of sin, the separation from God that comes from sin. I've had conversations with people before that say, I just feel so guilty for the way that I've lived my life. And I respond to that, probably not the most encouraging thing to hear initially, hopefully they hear me out, say, you feel guilty because you are guilty. That's the problem. Not that you feel guilty. The problem is you are guilty because you've broken God's law. You want to know how you can be right with the Lord again? A Savior who's Christ the Lord. And they tell him, they tell the shepherds how to find him. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger in a food trough. Now, this is really interesting because he tells them you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, last week we talked about what were swaddling cloths. This is very standard fare for baby care in that century. So it'd be kind of like saying, hey, you're going to find this newborn baby. You're looking for this one in the city. They're going to be wearing a diaper. Like, okay, that narrows it down. They're, they're all doing that. But then he tells them they're going to be in a manger, a feed trough. Okay, what? Well, narrows things down, I guess. We have no idea how this all played out. When I read Bible stories, I can't help but kind of, you try to think through, like, how did this actually go? And we're not given a ton of information, but just imagine these shepherds going to the city, knocking on a door. You might have a newborn with a swaddling cloth. He's going to be lying in a feed trough. Oh, no, sorry, next house. How did they find him? We don't know exactly. But the swaddling cloths are mentioned again, and of course the shepherds do eventually go and find Jesus. Verse 14, or verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. A multitude of the heavenly host, we don't know exactly how many of these guys there were, but we know there's a bunch, probably tens of thousands even. It's a military term. Um, We think of angels sort of in the uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost sort of idea. They're very, they're very uh, tame. When people see angels in the Bible, they are warriors, and people fall on their face before angels. So you're in the field. The glory of God has shown up. You're speaking, hearing this angel speak to you, and then all of a sudden, he's got tens of thousands of friends with him, and they're all crying out, glory to God in the highest. This is an amazing scene. We can't even begin to replicate something like this, even with modern cinematography and movies. It's an amazing scene. Another amazing thing is that these angels are praising God for salvation, for your salvation. Isn't that cool? One pastor said, these angels didn't need to be forgiven. They were without sin. These angels didn't need Jesus to die for them. We ought never let the angels outpraise us for the gospel. These angels are excited about the gospel. We ought to be more excited about the gospel. The angels are praising God for this saving work that he's doing. Peter says over in 1 Peter 1, the angels long to look into your salvation. The angels long to understand. What an incredible reality. These angels, servants of God, praising God for the work that he's doing. Let's see the shepherd's response. 
The shepherds are changed. Verse 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just like the angel said. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds are changed. We spoke of this for a moment last week, but the shepherds don't add anything necessarily to the redemptive plan here. Why are the shepherds even mentioned? They aren't rabbis, they aren't influential, they aren't contributing in any kingdom strategic way from our vantage point at least. What it shows us is that the shepherds show up to worship for the same reason that we do. Because the Lord is worthy of worship. That's why he's worthy. This is a theme that we see often in Luke and we'll explore this more as we move along. And that is this idea of reversal. The last are going to be first. The first are going to be last. We could say it this way, adopting a phrase from Jerry Bridges. No one is so good that they are beyond the need of God's grace. No one is so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And those are the two ditches that we really see. If you're here today and you think somehow, well, I don't need all that Christianity stuff. I kind of have it all figured out on my own. Jesus didn't come for the sick or for the well. He came for the sick. So you have to come to the end of yourself first. But, and I think perhaps this is more the issue that we deal with with many people today. People feel like they are beyond the reach of God's grace. People say, well, you just don't understand what I've done. You're right, I don't. But he does, remember? He's a sympathetic high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses. Some people think, I don't have the right education, the right pedigree, the right look. God hasn't restricted his grace to a particular socioeconomic status, a particular people. He's a global God calling on all people to come and to believe, to repent of their sins and trust in him. The people who say, I don't need grace, and the people who say, I don't deserve grace, the answer is really the same to both of them. You need the gospel. The gospel will show you your need, and the gospel will meet that need as you embrace Christ as your Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks so much for some time that we can spend in your word today, and what an amazing scene that we see with these shepherds, lowly shepherds who don't have any special gifts or pedigree to bring. What we see is just normal people. And Lord, what we also see is your faithfulness to bring about your kingdom in the proper time. How spectacular that the glory of God shows up to these people at this time. Lord, you will dwell again with your people in a profound way. And the hope of the whole Bible rests on this, that you're not done with humanity. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity we have to be together today. Lord, for maybe some of those who are listening and maybe have never really seen their need for Christ, I pray that you would use texts like this. Use your word to show them that they're in desperate need of a Savior. Nobody is outside the need of God's grace. And your grace is available for those who call out and ask for it. And so we thank you for that. Lord, be honored in our worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.